Hello, everybody. Welcome to Diederik's Beach Bar, formerly known as the Polarizer Podcast. There's a little name change for you. I decided to change the name because I was never really happy with the name Polarizer Podcast, and I just kind of came up with that because I had to give give it some name. You know, you have to slap a name on the show if you're going to put it on the internet. And I finally came up with something that I quite like. So Diederik's Beach Bar... I like the ring of that. Makes sense because the podcast website is dedirect.blog, so it's all a little bit more cohesive. And the nature of the show, of course, also fits the name as it's a long-form conversation with someone as if I'm sitting next to him in a bar. That's kind of how the main idea of the show started out. So finally an appropriate name after three and a half years. So there we go, Dedrick's Beach Bar. And today... I am talking to Dinosaur Dave, Dave from episode number 30 and 31 from Dinosaur Rock Guitar. Those are some of my favorite episodes I've done so far, and we went very deep into legendary guitar players and uh, guitar gear amplifiers and effects they use. And we were kind of talking like, well, we we have a lot more to talk about, but how are we going to how we're going to do this, because there's so much to talk about in the world of heavy guitar. And this was Dave's idea, and uh, I thought it was uh, was a great idea right away. On Dinosaur Rock Guitar, there are these alchemy profiles of these legendary guitar players, and these are very well-written, nice articles, and we figured, well, let's go through that in, a, in an audio form, audio slash video form, I mean, if you're listening to this on just audio, you'll get uh, you'll get a good idea of what we're talking about. But this is also a video, so if you have the chance, you can look at this episode on YouTube as well, as some clips will be shown during this conversation as well. And today's subject is Richie Blackmore, the guitar player from Deep Purple and Rainbow, and. I think that's all the introduction that's needed there. We're talking about this gentleman for over two hours, going into his playing style, into what kind of guitar gear he uses, and basically his entire career in music, at least the hard rock part, the medieval music part that came after Rainbow. We uh, we don't talk about that a whole lot, but my guess is that most of you will be tuning in because you're big fans of Deep Purple, Rainbow, and the man himself. And be sure to visit dinosaurrockguitar.com if you haven't already, and go to dederick.blog to sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an episode of the podcast or any update. But first, a word from our sponsors. Apos Audio, that's spelled A-P-O-S, Audio is an authorized retailer of new audiophile equipment from a growing but carefully curated set of brands. By partnering directly with the brands they carry, they guarantee 100% authenticity of everything they sell. They offer free shipping, lowest price guarantee, second-year warranty, and a 45-day return policy on all the products, so you can be confident that you'll be happy with your purchase. Go to Diederik.blog slash APOS, that's D-I-E-D-E-R-I-K dot blog slash 
A-P-O-S. So do you know I've sent you. Our next sponsor is Amazon. Everyone knows Amazon. Everyone loves Amazon. It's easy. They got everything. They ship quickly. It's the best. So go to diedrich.blog slash Amazon to go to the homepage. It will be the same as always. Only difference is they know I've sent you. So I'll get a little kickback every time you make a purchase. It's a very easy way to sponsor the show. You can even create a bookmark based on diedrich.blog slash Amazon. So every time you go to Amazon, you'll land on it through the affiliate link. Very easy way to sponsor the show. And the last one, Alert Allergy App for iPhones. Alert is spelled A-L-L-E-R-T, and that's because it's an app for people with food allergies. If you travel to a country where you don't speak the language, you can use this app to generate a dynamic allergy card based on your specific allergies in the language that you choose. It supports the 14 most common allergies, which cover well over 90% of all cases and 44 different languages. So when we're allowed to travel again, I'm sure you'll be dying to go abroad and see the world again. Take that app with you if you have a food allergy. Search for alert that's spelled A-L-L-E-R-T on the iOS app store to find it. All right, without further ado, here is Dave, who's going to teach us a lot about Richie Blackmore today. Enjoy the show, ladies and gentlemen. All right, welcome to the show, everybody. This is a different kind of episode. I am again talking to Dave, whom I've talked to twice before, episode 30 and 31. Be sure to check those out first. And that went very well. And we we thought, well, let's dive deeper into these profiles that are on Dinosaur Rocky Top. So uh, Dave, why don't you tell me a little bit about this plan? Okay, so we, we were talking about what we might do next because we both enjoy these discussions. And um, Tedrick has mentioned before that the website that I run has a section called Guitar Alchemy where we profile um, lots of different guitarists who are big in this genre of heavy rock and melodic metal. And um, we do an in-depth profile in written word uh on my website and we thought wouldn't it be cool if we did a deep dive on some of these players as a series where we basically can have a conversation about what's sort of written in text but uh to discuss these points and show examples with video clips and audio clips and everything and we think it might be fun so that's what we're going to try to do and today we're starting off with one of the big daddies of all time uh mr richie blackmore who was uh, the guitar player in Deep Purple and the guitar player in his own band, Rainbow. And he is a legend, um, one of the very first legendary players of early heavy rock and metal. So, All right. What was your motivation to start out with uh, Blackmore as the very first to cover? Um, he's fun. Uh, he's, uh, he's quite a character. Um, and there's a lot to talk about about him. And he's, you know, somebody who is well known in the guitar community, especially the heavy rock guitar community. He is, like I said, if there was a Rushmore of guys, 
a Mount Rushmore of guys uh, in this style, he'd be on it. And um, well, he is on he, it on that uh, album. Well, cover yeah, of on, the, on the cover of it in rock. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, the it, the stylistic style of these players. You always had like the first four guys who were Hendrix, Clapton, Page, and Beck. And the next guys who, those were like sort of the proto-metal, proto-dino style guitar players, the first really loud lead players uh, of, of, of note. And the next bunch of guys who were really the guys who kicked off what would later be called heavy metal are Page, Wyoming, and Blackmore. Jimmy Page Frazier. is the only guy. He's the only guy in both groups, really. But uh, when when psychedelic rock and trippy acid rock started to really become focused and crystallized as hard rock, and which would later become heavy metal, you end up, you know, start the starting foundational pillars are Page and Blackmore and Iomi. Okay, sure. And uh, so he he is that foundational and that uh important to this style of music cool and uh, iomi is of course of black sabbath yep and uh page is of course of led zeppelin yep and richie was from deep purple and those three bands defined what would later become heavy metal i think the only one who's really owned up to the to the label heavy metal is tony iomi and Black Sabbath, they, they really can't ditch that label. The others, you could make a case that, okay, this was not quite metal, but, you know, it's certainly early metal if you want to get to find it that way. But but Sabbath really was the band that is largely credited for really giving it its hallmarks sonically and its hallmarks harmonically and, you know, making the doomy sounding music and things like that. Um, Purple and Zeppelin still retained much more blues rock influence in their, in their music. And I know that, you know, uh, Jimmy Page never wanted Led Zeppelin associated with a heavy metal tag. Um, but Iomi, even though for years they always just said, we just think we're a rock and roll band. They finally had to come around to the idea that, yeah, they're, they're really the ones who, who started what would become heavy metal. But, uh, you know, Richie Blackmore comes from the same era as those other guys. He was a, like Jimmy Page, he was a studio session guy. Uh, early on in his life, he was doing sessions in his teenage years. Um, he was an astonishing player for his time, way ahead of his time. And one of the things that really was so unique about Richie among, uh, in comparison to his peers, most of his peers were very much playing in a bluesy style. And Richie could do that too. But Richie also is, is really the first guy in rock to bring the classical influence uh, of classical music into rock and roll. Um, and, you know, that would later on spawn guys like Ingve Malmsteen to do, you know, classically inspired stuff. Uli Roth, Uli John Roth, another guy early on playing classical style. And, you know, you get classical style influences in players like Michael Schenker and Randy Rhodes as well. But it all comes in rock and roll. It all comes from Richie. Right. 
Well, and uh, one thing that, that some people might not know is uh, that the classical style, classical music, is basically that's where heavy metal comes from, as, as strange as that sounds, correct? Okay, if, um, you, if you play the classical classical music scales on guitar really fast and loud, that's when you kind of get the heavy metal, right? Well, I think, you know, it's certainly a part of it. I think there's a lot of bluesy pentatonic stuff in that in that genre as well. Okay. And the cool thing about Blackmore uh, that I think he did better than his peers and the people who followed him late, later was he struck the right balance between a blues style and a classical style. And he would go in and out of it, uh, you know, from the bluesier style to ripping out some sort of classical shred thing, all within the context of the same song perhaps in the same solo, he'd, you know, he'd go back and forth and make it sound cool. Um, but, you know, you don't have uh, the, the neoclassical trappings of guitar in the other guys. The, the next earliest guy you'd get would be Uli Roth in the Scorpions. He was doing that too. And he had a, a, a strong Hendrix influence as well, as did Richie. But um, How far apart are those guys in terms of years? Uh, Uli's a little younger, and Uli Uli claims he doesn't think he got much of it from Blackmore, and you know I think in that that case that may be sort of a fair assessment that they came at it sort of like they both arrived at that through whatever they were listening to, uh, and you know here's where we is a good place to talk about you know what we're going to do in this show is go through these alchemy profiles as written and sort of cover the things that we cover there. And one of the first things we usually talk about is um, in addition to what these guitarists are famous for, and sometimes like in Richie's case, infamous for, we talk about their influences and, you know, Richie Blackmore lists his influences as guys like big Jim Sullivan, who was another studio session guy that worked along with Hitman, Jimmy page doing sessions Dwayne Eddy, American rock and roller. Hank Marvin, he was the guy in the shadows who was so big in uh, the UK in the uh, early days of rock and roll. Django Reinhardt, that's gypsy jazz. West Montgomery, that's straight jazz. James Burton, that's, you know, your your Elvis guitar player who does sort of, you know, the Elvis style rockabilly stuff. And Les Paul, not the guitar, but the man. those were the, the the influences you see him list when you can find them. And for the life of me, when I listen to Richie play, I don't hear those guys. He's a true original. Um, I'm sure he I'm sure he was influenced by those guys, but I don't know where it comes out in his own style. He is so distinct and so instantly recognizable when he plays. There's a lot of players who try to sound like him, but he doesn't sound like anybody else. You you could, you know. It, if once you know what you're listening for, Richie is so instantly recognizable in his style and his sound. And, um, you know, I think the classical stuff, you know, he doesn't listen to that, but I mean, clearly he was listening to some kind of classical music. And he was also, I know he was, he said he listened to, um, he listened to European radio through like a ham radio set and was picking up like, uh, 
Eastern Bloc countries putting out like, you know, I think, you know, some of the scales he plays, he's, he, he heard in like Hungarian music and wow. things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, he heard things he liked and he assimilated them and, you know, like, like we all do as players, but uh, the way he ended up mixing it up and putting it together and how it came out in his own playing was extremely unique. The fact that he's super recognizable, I can also attest to that. I was listening to a lot of Deep Purple and, and Rainbow in the weeks leading up to this interview. And at one point I was driving with my wife in a car and I was listening to some Rainbow and my wife said, like, hey, are you uh, are, are we listening to Deep Purple now? And I was like, no, same guitar player but a different band and she's not a big fan of either, but she recognized like the, the, the style. Like, Hey, that sounds like deep purple. So that's kind of, yeah. that's kind of cool. So one of the things we, um, we're going to be talking about whether is, you know, we'll do a deeper dive into the style itself, but we're going to talk about what these guys are famous for. Yeah. And in the case of Richie Blackmore, he is one of the, uh, the huge riff kings of all time in heavy rock uh you know we talk about guys like him and page and iomi again they're all very famous for creating countless classic guitar riffs and um you know one of the things that richie was very famous for was uh he has a unique rhythm style and he plays a lot of his riffs uh in a way where you you know this is for for a guitar player will know what this means, but he uses uh, fourth dyads, which is basically a way of voicing a chord on two strings where you, you're just hitting two notes and they're right adjacent to each other. So you can hit them with one finger. And he's created a load of riffs, including some of his most famous riffs using this method. And that's, that's one of the things uh, you can hear when we, when we play this clip of some of the famous riffs that he's going to. Oh, and the most famous riff using that technique would be of course smoke on the water yeah. yeah which everybody has heard but that's far from the only one he's used this technique over and over again and um let's just take a listen and play the clip sure
So one thing I also hear is that there's a an organ playing alongside his guitar playing at the same time. Right. And that's another thing that sort of, uh, it probably didn't completely def- define his style, but it added to his style in that Richie doesn't play a lot of rhythm guitar in the classical sense. He, he sort of buys, he, he plays his riffs and he buys time and the, and he, you know, he relies a lot on the organ or the keyboards, depending on, you know, what the, what the player is playing to round out the sound in the band. So you don't, he doesn't have a traditional rhythm guitar style. He has a very eclectic guitar style where he will, you know, he'll play the right riffs and then he'll, he'll kind of hang back during the vocal and he'll play some things that are sometimes common with what a bass player might play. And just, you know, stay out of the way until it was time to take a solo or play the riff again. Right. As opposed to a guy who's, you know, who's foundationally holding down the chords. He's letting the keyboard player do that in both Deep Purple and in Rainbow a lot of the time. Um, Does he also write a composition for those keyboard lines or is that uh, from the... I don't think so. Um, I think, you know, he, you know, when he was with Purple, he was working with John Lord, who was a genius anyway. Um one of the, you know, probably the greatest rock organist of all time, um, who, uh, you know, would come up with his own parts and was every bit the soloist that, yeah. that Richie was. I mean, brilliant, brilliant player. Um, made in Japan record, like everyone in the band that's Deep Purple record, everyone just goes crazy. Including well, everybody the... in that band was, was a complete uh, virtuoso on their, on, what, on their respective instruments. Yeah, the, you know, um, the drums are also just crazy. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it, according to Richie, he was a band with five colossal players who had five colossal egos. <laughs> and when when he started Rainbow, he wanted to get back to a band where the only colossal ego was his own, and he knew it. <laughs> so this was, you know, we talk about one of the things he, you know, the, we talked about some of the stuff he's famous for. By the way, some of the other things he's famous for. Uh, was he discovered a lot of uh, great singers throughout his uh, time in Purple and Rainbow. Uh, with Deep Purple, the original singer was Rod Evans, but they found Ian Gillen later, and then they found David Coverdale, and then they found Glenn Hughes. And then when he was going off to do Rainbow, he found Ronnie James Dio. And yeah. then he found... Uh, Later, he found Graham Bonnet and he found Joe Lynn Turner. So you're talking about, you know, a bunch of very famous singers who are all great singers in their own right. Um, Some of the most uh, legendary singers in this style of rock and roll music. And all of them have connections to being sort of, you know, discovered by Richie and to a certain extent Deep Purple as well. They all, you know, agreed on these singers were, you know, the ones they loved. So, and uh, the the things that he's infamous for are are equally Im- impressive. He has a, a reputation for being really sullen and stubborn and moody and uh, difficult to work with. Um, he, he once said in an interview that he loved the um, the Betty Davis quote: "You're nobody until you're difficult." <laughs> <laughs> So I think he really embraced that. He also, I think 
in addition to embracing it, he also sort of pokes fun at it at the same time. He's aware that he has this reputation. And while he's, I think he's pleased that he has this reputation, he's not above poking some fun at it at times. But uh, yeah, you know, he's not a guy who's got a lot of people saying a lot of great things about him as a person. Uh, Everybody will agree he's a great player. But uh, he has has really fostered this reputation as a a, uh, volatile, cantankerous character who was notorious for playing practical jokes on members of his own band and and things like that. Um, And I think, you know, the other thing, we have the clip for this, but uh, one of the legendary stories was when he and Deep Purple were performing at California Jam in 1974, where Richie had it written into the contracts that... Deep Purple would go on at dusk and be the first band on the bill that had lighting. And um, it was a big festival. It was like 300,000 people there. And uh, they were supposed to go on at like eight or nine o'clock when the sun was going down. And of course, these things that the way they're run, it's always a shamble. And all of a sudden, around six o'clock in the evening, ABC television is telling them, you got to go on now. And Richie said, no way. (laughs) And he was not about to budge. He locked himself in his trailer and they pounded on the doors and they tried to get the other bandmates to get him to go on stage early. And he just was not having it. And um, when you know the backstory, I kind of, I kind of understand why he did this for years. I didn't hear the backstory for years. It's just like Richie went, apocalyptic at the Cal Jam and no one really knew why. But uh, when he did a video series in 2015, um, like a DVD of his own career, he explained a lot of things in a lot of contexts that had never been explained before. And he, he tells the story. You can find this on YouTube. Just you know, go to YouTube and uh, search for Blackmore at Cal Jam. Yeah. And you can, you can see him explaining why that day went off the way it did. <laughs> and it was funny because at the end of the thing, I was like, I don't blame him for doing what he did now because he had, you know, he had really not wanted to play that show at all. He was uh, against doing big festivals. He said, they're always terrible. Um, all of these things that he said, they're always a nightmare. And then he said, the only way I'm doing it is if we have it in our contract that we're going to go on at dusk and be the only band that, you know, the first band that has lights. And that's why he agreed to do it. And then they were trying to get him to do it before that. Why? And, uh, because that the, the show was running ahead of schedule. Right. And it was ABC, the network ABC in America was filming this thing live for television. And they had like two and a half, three hours of dead air on, on waiting for the next band to come on. Cause Blackmore wouldn't come out of his trailer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he finally goes on stage. They finally go on stage as the sun is setting down when he said he would. And at a certain point he was obviously still pissed off, but at a certain point, the cameraman started getting too close to him. They had these big TV cameras that were, uh, you know, on on dollies. They were like, you know, bigger than a person. 1970s era television cameras on wheels and stuff. And it started getting too close to him. And they had told the cameraman prior, stay out of his way. Don't get too close. But the cameraman didn't listen. So at a certain point in the show, Blackmore finally goes off. And he takes his strap and he beats the crap out of the camera. 
and it's all caught on film. And in the last song, they wanted what they wanted to do was upstage Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, who I believe were going on after them. Uh, and so Richie, what he did was he had his roadies pour gasoline all over his uh, fake martial amps, <laughs> and he was going to have them, you know, set on fire. It was going to be this dramatic-looking thing, you know, the kind of you know, spectacle that you got at Woodstock with with Hendrix you know, burning stuff and, and towns and smashing his, his guitars and stuff. But they, you know, they put too much gasoline on the amps and they didn't just catch fire. They kind of blew up. Yeah. And they blew a hole in the stage. <laughs> and Ian Pace, the drummer, his glasses went flying off of his head. Um, I think uh, somebody got singed or something like that. You see Glenn Hughes running out of the smoke towards the front of the stage. It was a big conflagration, and um, you can. This is the end of the show. The amps are on fire. the The stage is blown up. There's a a, a big hole in the stage, uh, in the floor of the stage. They've they've destroyed the thing, um, and um, I think if I remember correctly in the story that Richie was telling, he said like the manager was kind of like standing in front of the monitors. So the ABC people couldn't see what was going on on stage and the police and fire departments start coming out to see what's going on and, and, you know, <laughs> raid the place, basically put out the fire and raid the place. And of course they're stuck in the traffic of you know, a huge festival show, they can't get there very fast. And the bands had had to be, had to have been helicoptered in and out. So while the police were trying to get there, Richie and the band, they jumped on a helicopter and got away. <laughs> <laughs> so they got out of it uh, before all of it came down. He did end up, I think the band did end up having to pay for the $70,000 TV camera that he brought. <laughs> But that'll give you kind of a like an idea of the kind of character he he has been. And what, uh, was he also like a big party guy with drugs and women and throwing not throwing so much things, drugs, like destroying hotels really, and stuff. Um, they would they would do some practical jokes. They were definitely practical jokers, um, and especially in um, well, I guess. Richie was a practical joker in both in both bands, really. But um, like, what would he they, do? Uh, I think one of the stories that Lemmy from Motorhead tells is he says is the best story he remembers is that um, there was one guy who was like part of the management entourage or something like that in in the the band, and um, I think he got so wasted or something like that, that they stripped him naked and drove him out to the countryside. And he found himself like naked in a car, like a hundred miles away or something <laughs> like that. Or um, there was, I know there was a case where uh, they taped a guy's mouth shut and tied him up. And they, they basically hung him over the stage for a while. Um, I, yeah, I don't remember all the stories, but you know, if you look into, you know, there, there's some, there's some stories, and uh, you know, he, he was always that guy, and, but not so much. I mean, I think there was plenty of uh, social drinking, 
but not, you know, they were never a big drug band, okay. uh, Deep Purple, not until Glenn Hughes and Tommy Bolin, but uh, the, the, you know, the, in, the original incarnation of the Mark II lineup and, and the same was true in Rainbow. It was not, it's not a band known for a lot of heavy partying, like, you know, some of them. Right. And he also had like the loudest amps out there, right? That was also yeah, thing. so let's um, let's get into some of the things. Uh, we'll 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 save that for the gear talk. But um, all right, sure. Let's talk about uh, the um, one of the things we talk about are, are a player's strengths and their weaknesses. And we've talked we touched on this a little bit already earlier on. Uh, we talked about the riffs, the riff writing. That was a huge strength for him. The classical influence of bringing in all of these sort of stylistic Baroque influences from. Uh, classical music into rock and roll. And it's worth noting um, that he's always been a fan of medieval music and minstrel music and things like that. And what he ended up doing years and years later in Blackmore's Night was something he was thinking about. Um, There's interviews from like 1978 where he's talking about wanting to play some of that kind of music at some point. And um, I think when he finally burned out on, you know, heavy classic rock, he wanted to go into that direction uh, and that's where he's been for the last few decades of his of his playing life i think he's 75 now or something like that and he's you know he he has this band called blackmore's night with his wife and uh they go around they play these festivals these these medieval festivals and things and you know there's a degree of popularity he has with that um most of the people i know aren't that interested in that aspect of his music but um it seems to have made him uh both the wife and the project seem to have made him a kinder and gentler richie blackmore than what he was <laughs> as a young man i think um they're still cranking out albums right yeah they do they do so we talked about the classical influence we talked about the blues influence and you know you'll hear the blues influence in a lot of the deep purple stuff. It's really uh, sort of, if you think of the two different bands, deep purple and rainbow, there's a lot more of the blues stuff in the deep purple side. And there's a lot more of the classical stuff in the rainbow side. And Richie, for what, you know, for as good as he was in deep purple as a player, as a, particularly as a lead player, he was still getting better in rainbow. There were, there were things he was doing in Rainbow, the, the complexity of the guitar solos, for example, that he was coming up with in Rainbow uh, were on a different level than what you would hear in Purple. Most people, you know, greatly prefer Deep Purple to Rainbow. They're, they were a much more popular band. They were a much more influential band in a lot of ways. But what I'm getting at is Richie kept growing as as a player. And, you know, he would have been in his late twenties and early thirties at this point. And it's natural that he'd still be progressing, you know. What would be a good example of a rainbow track where you can really say like, hey, that's that's like a different kind of level than the deep Yeah. The the one that I keep coming back to and we have a clip and we'll play the clip, uh, is the solo in Gates of Babylon from Long Live Rock and Roll. And what he's doing there, both in terms of melodically and in terms of technique are on a different level than what you will hear in most of the purple stuff. There's some blazing stuff in purple. I'm not going to say there isn't. And certainly even when you get into after they 
got back together as as Mark II in the early '80s. His playing was still, you know, fantastic. But uh, if like you play perfect. Gates of Babylon, you're going to hear some things. You're going to hear some uh, some melodic ideas that are not blues based, along with a few bits that are. And some some things you'll hear a little bit of sweet picking. You'll hear some things that are you know much more coming from a neoclassical side than a say a blues side. And what you might get from you know songs like Mistreated and and Lazy and things like that, which were much more leaning blues. So run the clip of uh, Gates of Babylon solo. Sure. good <laughs> yeah and it's it's really like you know if you if you listen to that and you try to find something like that in deep purple it's not there right it's you know there are some neoclassical um influences and classical influences in in his uh guitar style in deep purple you get it in highway star you get it in um a couple of other tracks as well you, but you're getting it more in rainbow and you're getting it more later um we have you know this is where it would be a good place to run the video of the classical inspired influence.
That's really yeah. something. So, you know, classical trademarks there are things like arpeggiated triads, which you get on that part in Kill the King. You get it in um, uh, Man on the Silver Mountain. And, you know, some of those other runs that he's doing in those other clips are, are straight up classical runs. And, um, you know, that's kind of the kind of thing that launched the whole neoclassical guitarist movement of people like Ingve and people who followed Ingve sort of going down that road as their influence. Um, you know, Ingve will claim he doesn't get any of it from Blackmore, but he's, he's fooling himself. He's not fooling anybody else, <laughs> but uh, uh, it, it's clear that, you know, he listened to, to things like Richie and then he dived deeper and then went into listening to Paganini and all the things he says he listens to. So, I mean, I think it was, you know, an early inspiration, if not, a, you know, a complete, you know, dedicated influence. But uh, a lot of this stuff that you hear in these other players, this comes straight from Richie. And uh, before Richie, no one's doing this in rock and roll. Um, and then he bet, like I said, he, unlike most of the other players, he balances it really good with the blues influence that keeps it rooted in something more visceral and something more uh, relatable and something more ballsy and sexual. And, you know, he's a great blues guitarist too when he wants to be one.
That's great. <laughs> yeah, so it's, great. it's just a little blues improv. <laughs> but I mean, there are there are bluesy tracks, like I said, like Mistreated. Was that and, Deep Purple, by the way? Or yeah, Deep Purple, Mark III, Mistreated. Um, they did it again as a Rainbow track later with Ronnie Dio singing it. Things like Lazy, that's a blues track. Um, you know, so you here you have this balance of this guy who's kind of like got one foot in the same thing that everybody else is playing in those years. But he's also bringing this whole other classical thing that very few other people were doing. And even when he's playing blues, he still sounds like Richie. I right. mean, it, it's it's like you can't mistake it for anybody else. It's 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 just such a uh, unique style that he has. Um, and then the other thing that was really apparent back in 1970, I'd say, is that he had far better chops than most of his peers. He was a, a more technical player than most of his peers at that time. Um, Deep Purple in its first lineup, Mark One Deep Purple, they opened for Cream for a while. And um, this was at, like in 1968 when Cream were at the height of their, uh, their powers and Eric Clapton was reportedly God by most people over in the UK and was doing really, you know, amazing things on guitar uh, in his own right. And here was Blackmore who nobody knew at that time. He was getting on stage every night with the express desire to blow Eric Clapton off the stage. <laughs> and by all accounts, he was doing it and he was getting in Clapton's head, which wasn't that hard to do apparently, but uh, they didn't, they didn't last very long on that tour. Uh, they played, I, I think it was like a handful of gigs supporting Cream, and then they were off the tour. And I don't, you know, you can draw your own conclusions as to why that might be. But if you hear where Rick, where Richie was in his technical abilities in those days compared to Page and Clapton and Hendrix and Jeff Beck, he was leagues ahead of them in terms of speed and technique. Yeah, he's he's so quick and he's so good and so accurate. You know, it's it's. Yeah, and back then it was really you know a huge differentiator. I mean, since since then, I mean, obviously the bar has been raised quite a bit, and there are players who play a lot faster and a lot more proficient than Richie ever tried to do. But you know, you got to realize, nineteen seventy. I mean there was not a lot of guys who could play like that in 1970. And, you know, with that scope of uh, style and um, he was just way ahead of his uh, time and ahead of his peers. And, you know, you could think of him as one of the very first shredders.
that guy can play, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, and he's doing it without all of the, uh, you know, with he's doing it on a strat, and he's doing it without humbuckers, and he's doing it without all the gain you have these days. He's doing it, you know, with like the old marshals where, you know, the levels of gain are, are really minuscule compared to what we have now. So there's like, you're, you're out there naked with that guitar. And, you know, he's making it, he's making it really jam. And, and he's uh, making funny faces while he's doing it too. He's always the showman too. And obviously in the first, in the first part of that clip, he let that camera live. <laughs> and, uh, What's that the second? second the second one is Cal Jam. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was gonna say that's, that. Looks that's like before the... <laughs> he, yeah, it's before he went off. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, just just way ahead of his time. Badass. And um, you know, some of the things we've also uh, there's a um, there's a an album called Deep Purple in Concert, 1970 to 1972, and I think there's uh, it's similar from that that first clip we just saw but there's a, a track called ring that neck on that thing where he he's he's, he's like a, a an 18 minute jam piece he does with the band and he's just playing stuff that for its time is just remarkable uh you know you know you're talking about like 80s metal levels of shred back in 1970 and you know it just wasn't seen so uh, that was that along with everything else we've talked about, about his, his strengths uh, and also being a brilliant improvisationalist. Um, that's another thing. He's a guy who um, is never at a loss when he's, you know, doing improv uh, on the guitar. A lot of the things he does tend to be improvisational because um, one of the things he talks about uh, in one of his, early interviews is he doesn't have a great technical memory for remembering what he played on the record. So, you know, sometimes he'll remember bits and pieces of things like the smoke on the water solo. He knows pretty well, but if his, you know, a very long piece or something like that, he's, you know, a lot of the time you'll see him live, he'll be doing something that is a little different than what was on the album. Hmm. So, you know, he, he, he's one of those guys who really had uh, the ability to do pretty much everything you want. So we've talked about Richie's strengths. Um, one of the things we do in the Alchemy Profiles, we also talk about every player's weaknesses. Um, some players have a lot of them. Richie doesn't have a whole ton of, of weaknesses. Um, one of the things uh, he runs into trouble is when he loses interest. Um, you see in a lot of clips where he's a really compelling live performer. But there are also times where he's not in the mood to be playing and he's kind of mailing it in live. Um, you usually get it, you get an okay performance, but it's, it's not as, you know, energetic or, you know, you can tell when he's not into it. And, you know, there are times he's, you know, refused to do encores and things like that. He just wasn't in the mood to do it or was having a bad day or whatever. Was that um, uh, from the beginning of, of uh, when, when he first got big with Deep Purple or did that start I think it became, I think, I think he sort of grew into that as his stature became such that he could get away with it. Right. Um, Just a legendary rock star antics kind of stuff. Yeah. But I think, you know, he, he's, he's one of those guys in the, in rock and roll who's a volatile character 
And, you know, there's of the live footage that's available, a lot of which we're showing in these clips today. uh, There's a show from 1984, 83 or 84 in San Antonio with the Joe Lynn Turner lineup of Rainbow. And in my opinion, it is the best live performance they ever caught on tape or on film of Richie. He was absolutely into it that night knowing that the cameras were running he was and he was really uh doing everything he could to to put on a great performance which performance then, was that this was 1983 or 4 uh with rainbow in san san antonio it's okay. called live between the eyes now on the same tour there's a there's a uh a, a, f- a film of them in japan in tokyo and he's nowhere near as interested on in that in that concert you can see it it's, it, he's not he's not jumping around he's not you know being animated he doesn't ha- he doesn't have the same level of energy for whatever reason i mean it's hard to bring it every night uh for anybody but uh you know this is a man who was generally aware of when he was being filmed and tried to do you know better when he was being filmed but uh there are times when he was less interested or having a bad day and it showed some people, they don't let that show, you know, right. Some people, they, you know, they rise to that and they, uh, and they just deliver an evening performance. Blackmore was always kind of like, you know, if you get him on a great night, it's wonderful. If you get him on a disinterested night, it's still pretty good. Right. Um, the other thing is he was a, fairly disinterested rhythm guitar player. We talked a little bit about this, but I'm going to read the quote that I put in the Alchemy profile, and it's from a 1978 guitar player interview where he said, I hate to do rhythm tracks. They bore me silly. And although this comment was made in the context of laying tracks in the studio, the same can be said of Richie's live rhythm playing. In the same interview, he also states, I love to have the freedom of just going on stage and playing whatever I want to play at the time. I'll play the numbers with which I'm supposed to play, but in the in-between parts, if I'm feeling good, I'll play something completely off the wall that I've never tried in my life. In other words, I just lay back for the vocal, and then when I do my bit, when it, time, when it comes time to do the solo. I don't like to do intricate things in the backgrounds. I don't like clutter. I like the foundation to be simple. So this is what we were talking about a little bit earlier, where he, you know, he's letting the keyboard and the song dictate what's going on, um, during a lot of the rhythm parts of the verses and choruses and things. And then he'll wait when, when he has his moment, he'll go off and do a great solo or something like that. Or if it's a riff-based song, he'll play the riff, obviously. But um, there's a lot of times where he'll just, like, if you listen to the track Long Live Rock and Roll and you listen to the verses when Dio is singing, he's playing the kind of notes that a bass player would play. He's playing like a root octave figure or a root fifth octave figure where he's just playing single notes. He's not playing chords. So it's, it's a different sort of style where he gets away with that because he always has a keyboard player in the band. If he didn't, it would sound really thin. Right. But that also makes deep purples and rainbows sound pretty unique because absolutely only real big band. I know who has a, keyboard like central as a big thing is the doors but that was you know earlier well i guess you also had the animals but that's like 60s you know 
Yeah, well, I mean, you get a lot of synth stuff in the 80s and stuff, but I mean... Yeah, that's true. You know, even if you compare it to a guy like Eddie Van Halen when he was in the era of the keyboards, he was still playing classical rhythm guitar, you know? He's holding it down. Were there any bands in the 70s in the similar style that were were having a keyboard player as central and as... uh, well, I guess you would the obvious answer would be Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, who never had a, a dedicated guitar player. Right. Yeah. And right. they so needed one. They so needed one. I mean, it would have been that would have been a very interesting band if they had actually had a killer guitar player in the band. Uh, but you know, Greg Lake was the guy who covered guitar and bass. You know, but uh, it was really a lot about Keith Emerson. And um, and then again, you have Yes with Rick Wakeman, uh, but. You have plenty of guitar and and plenty of rhythm guitar in Yes with Steve Howe playing that stuff. So you're right. It's a very unique sound that you get when Blackmore's in the band because he he leaves a lot of space where there would normally be rhythm guitar. The other thing he said in his interview was uh, about why he never plays the same guitar solo twice. He says, I have a very bad technical memory, so I can't remember. If I write a tune exactly what the notes are, it's really exasperating because I'll write one and that's great. And I'll play it and record it and I'll play it again. And Oh dear, I've forgotten it. What did I play? It's really annoying. And that's from trouser press 1978. <laughs> so, you know, you have guys like Tony Iommi who almost always plays the same solo he played on the record yeah. and guys like, you know, guys like rush, they would play pretty much what was on the record. The um, guys from the Eagles or. Yeah, uh, but in the era of that Richie came from, you know, you have, you know, that experimental era of improvisation. Zeppelin always did that too. They never played what was on the record. They, you know, they they extend their numbers and go into long jams and things and, you know, completely stretch it out and make it different and Richie was like that too. So, those are really, you know, kind of the only things that um that would you could call weaknesses in his game. Uh, well, and the fact than, that you know, he doesn't want to get back to into hard rock, right? Right, right. And you know, it's funny. For years, we were all like, "We wish he'd go back and do something again. We wish he'd go back and do something again." And then he did it in like 2016, and I thought it sounded terrible. Really, um, he did? Yeah, they did a rainbow reunion. They got this guy, um, this singer who from somewhere in South America and he sounded really he sounded like his pitch was off when I heard the live clips you can find these on YouTube of you know the last time Richie looked bored to tears he he finally acquiesced and and went up on stage to do these songs again because the rock fans had been clamoring for it for years apparently and he wanted to do it one more time while he felt I guess he was still young enough to to pull it off and if you want he has no energy at all on stage he just, he, playing, he, just, he just looked like he didn't want to be there and he was playing, you know, because he had to be there. And I think, you know, he'd just been playing the quiet minstrel music too long to go back. I think he just, you know, I, I hope they don't do it again because it, it just didn't come off in the way that it came, you know. We could talk about some of the music in a bit about like the reunion with the Mark II, the purple, that, which came off so well. But um Here's where we usually talk about, you know, the gear and the tone. Uh, and um, Richie's gear, uh, 
changed over the years a little bit. He started out, you saw it in some of the clips, he was playing an ES-335 when he was in his studio session days. It was his first good guitar. He originally was playing with Vox AC-30s, and then he moved on to the Marshalls. Um, and, uh, and by the way, if you want to know more about this, listen to episode 31, where we talk for more than three hours about this sort of stuff. <laughs> Right, and there's also, if you want to know about Richie particularly, go to the Alchemy page in dinosaurrockguitar.com. There's a link on the page to a website that has done the most exhaustive rundown of gear that Richie used that I've ever seen. It's it's absolutely incredibly detailed in a level that, you know, even I'm not, you know, I, I know the general things that he used and, and, you know, and all of that, but this guy who's put together this website uh, that you can get the link from my site uh, if you want to know the gory details of like what pickups he was using in which guitars in 1974 or 1978 or whatever. He's got all of that information laid out there for you. And it's very interesting stuff. But um, I think he started treble, playing strats. It's treblebooster.net, I see. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. that's uh, that's the main page. Main page yeah, on which yeah. you're yeah. yeah, he's he's a guy who, I think who who is building replica treble boosters, but I was also a huge Blackmore fan. So cool. uh, he put that together, and it's it's still up. And um, I think the first Richie says the first Strat he got was one that Eric Clapton gave him. Wow. And um, wow. I guess it was a. Uh, I guess it was something that wasn't particularly a really good one or anything like that. But I think Richie was interested in, in start of starting to use the strat from seeing Hendrix. Um, it would be, it would be disingenuous to say that Richie didn't get anything from Jimi Hendrix. He did. Um, I think he got the idea that the strat could make all of these sounds and had the whammy bar and you could be bombastic with it and make, you know, those kinds of dive bomb noises and all of those kinds of things. And uh, also, I think what he also got from Hendrix was the performance aspect of what he could be live on stage and how he could be flamboyant and uh, reckless on stage the way Hendrix often was. And you saw, you know, in the clip of him, like, pushing the guitar across the, you know, the stage floor and things like that. Stomping on it. (laughs) Yeah. Those kinds of things. Um, He, to be honest, also, he was a huge who fan. You wouldn't know it, but from his music, but Richie Blackmore is a humongous who fan and very fond of, uh, you know, what Townsend was doing back in the day. And um, it's completely different from what Richie's ever done. Richie's never, um, Richie's never, done that kind of quick pop music kind of thing the way the who did but he was a big fan of them and he's also been a big fan of jeff beck in his career uh and has stated on occasion you know that when jeff is on there's nobody better Hmm. Uh, but jeff beck's another guy who isn't on every night so uh you have that kind of thing but anyway he got the strat apparently from from clapton and he almost never looked back. He pretty much from the time he got the Strat, he stuck with it. The only place that it really comes up of any note, the 335, that is, is uh, on Child in Time. Okay. He, plays the, he plays the 335 on Child in Time. 
and you can hear that it's a a humbucker Gibson sound in the solo of that uh, song. It's a different the kind same, of sound, yeah. Yeah, it's the same guitar he was playing in that clip where he he ended with uh, Jingle Bells. Uh, <laughs> that that's the guitar that I'm talking about. But for the rest, but for the most part, after that, that was in '70, I believe, 1970. He's pretty much straight up Strat for the rest of his career, and he had several of them. Uh, that he played throughout those those times, and and that website will will show you the evolution of what he did with each one. For the longest period of time, he had one that was associated with, which was a uh, a white seventy four rosewood neck strat that became his main guitar that was he used longer than any other. He he it started, I believe. Uh, I think he got that guitar during the Graham Bonnet years of Rainbow, but you don't really see it until like the Joel and Turner era. And it's the guitar that it, you see when he's doing that blues jam and the one where he's playing uh, some improvisorial stuff that we're going to show you in a clip. It's it's It was an old Olympic white that faded into this banana cream color. And it had um, a scalloped fingerboard, which means there's uh, scoops of wood taken out between the frets so that he can get his fingers under the strings a little easier. And that became a thing that, um, again, he was probably the first one to do that. He did it himself. And then it became a thing where like Ingve Strats have scalloped fingerboards now and other, other particularly neoclassical guys use scalloped fingerboards. What's the main um, advantage of that? You get you can get your finger under the string a little bit, and when it's it's not a speed thing, it's a control thing. It's for like you know bends and vibratos. So you're you're you can press further into the fingerboard and get more meat of your fingertip into the string. Right. Okay. And it gives you a little bit more. I don't play them. Um, I've never tried them really, but uh, you know, I understand what what they're about, and you have to have a very light touch. For example, when you're playing chords and stuff, stuff because you know you can press the string down so far between the frets that you can bend it out of tune if you press it too hard. Oh wow! Okay. You know where the fingerboard's normally going to stop you from pressing very far. You actually pull on them by pressing down. Yeah, I mean, imagine the space under the fingerboard of of a normal guitar. You know, you have if you're fretting the note. You know. Yeah. Imagine being able to press another quarter of an inch down. You could bend the guitar note out of tune easily if you're not if you you know so you you, you develop a lighter touch so you play those guitars it, it changes the way you play a little bit okay but um, it's very commonplace now and you see it in guys like Ingve and uh, James Bird and Joe Stump and guys who play in that neoclassical shredder style most of them are using that um, but again I, I don't think anybody was doing it really before Richie. And he had that guitar like that, and um, he sent it off for a refret. And the idiot he sent it to, uh, instead of just putting in new frets, he planed the neck completely flat. And uh, it was he he thought he was doing something cool, but basically he ruined the guitar. And uh, Richie went berserk because. <laughs> You know, you're, you send a guitar off for work. The guys, this is like basic stuff. 
do the work you're hired to do. Don't do anything more to a guitar unless someone, you know, you, you, you know, you call and you ask the guy, Hey, I found this problem with your guitar. Do you want me to fix it? Right. If not, just do what you were contracted to do. He was supposed to put in new frets and this guy didn't realize that these scalloped spaces between the fingerboards, he thought it was wear. He thought it was wear and tear. So he thought he was doing a good thing by completely planing it flat. And uh, when the guitar came back, it was ruined. And it was Richie's, it had been Richie's main guitar for a long time. What did he do? Did he? Uh... He had to, he, he basically had to pick one of his other strats and, and he's been using that one ever since. So okay. a similar one, but uh, it's a sad ending to a, a guitar that was a really cool number one guitar. Yeah. Yeah. On a, on a lot of legendary recordings. Right, right. And uh, live performances too. What happened? What it, happened to it? Like, did he just get he rid of it? He still has or? it. He has. He still has it. I mean, but you know, I don't think he ever wanted to like, sort of like put on a new fingerboard and go through the whole process of right. doing it again. But yeah. I was kind of hoping there was a story that he like beat the guy with it or something. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. That I, I've had friends who've had the same kind of thing happen, where it's like you take a guitar for service, and they do something that you never asked them to do that you didn't want. Yeah, and it's just it's ridiculous. No one should do that. Anyway, on the ampl- uh, amplifier side, that's another interesting story. Um, he's a guy who's mostly associated with Marshalls, but uh, he never he claims he never really loved the Marshall sound. Um, there was a time. Early on, he was using the AC-30s, the Vox AC-30s. And then, you know, he went to the Marshalls. And, for example, on the Cal Jam stage, all those Marshalls he blew up were were fake Marshalls. They were just, like, empty cabinets and heads. He didn't destroy real gear. He did, you know, this is very common back in the day. They'd have the backdrop of, of all of these Marshall stacks on stage. And some people used real ones, and some people just used, you know, the facade basically of of having them on stage but he did use marshalls and um he developed he he was originally using these modified 200 watt marshall majors now which is already no, insanely loud yeah, right <laughs> right right so you you know you have in those days you had a 50 watt marshall and you had a 100 watt marshall and the 100 watt marshall was only maybe 10 percent louder than the 50 watt marshall so he's um, he started using these 200 watt marshals, and then he had them modded so that they would output 280 watts. And um, Jim Marshall would tell the story that when Richie showed up at the factory, everybody would leave the building because <laughs> they knew he was going to be testing his amps, and they knew it's like it would just be deafening. And uh, he had these 280 watt marshals, and you can see pictures of this too in, in live photos and in live pictures. He would not, he knew he was smart enough to not stand in front of them for any length of time. He, he, he actually joked about, I point them at the singer. <laughs> Just to mess with him. Just to be a dick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I, I did have the, the, the opportunity to see him live with rainbow in Joe Lynn Turner's era where he was using what three of these two. It was like, it was like that tour that, that live between the eyes tour, 1984, something like that. And it was, it had to be 83 because 84, they're back together with purple. I think he was using them in purple too. But I remember 
the first time I saw Richie live was was during the Joe Linterna era of of Rainbow, and it was the Live Between the Eyes tour, and he had three of these Marshall stacks on stage with three of these 281 amps. I don't know if they were all on at the same time. I think it may have just been one, and the others were two were, were backups in case they would blow up or something. But my God, he was loud. Oh my God, he was loud. It was just unbelievably loud and it sounded great, but it was really, really damn loud. <laughs> um, and after that, he moved on to, uh, in more recent years, after he stopped doing a lot of, I mean, maybe it was in the last, it was during the last tours of Rainbow in the mid nineties. Where did he went you see to, him? Where, where was his concert? Was it? Uh... I think it was either, it was either the Worcester Center, uh, Worcester uh, Civic Center, where the hell is in Worcester, Massachusetts? I can't remember what the building was called, the main building in Worcester, or the Providence Civic Center in Providence, Rhode Island. I was living in Boston at the time, and that was a, a a typical place for bands passing through in New England would go in those those venues, and uh, it, so it was you know a hockey rink sized building, but it was damn loud, and um, it was great though. I can imagine that's, uh, you know, if I had a time yeah. machine, that was, that's the first stuff I'd do, man. See all these guys uh, in their prime. Yeah. Anyway, he worked with the German uh, amp company called Engel, E-N-G-L, in the early 90s and developed what was uh, a signature amp called the, uh, the, it was, you know, I think it's a 100-watt Engel head called the Richie Blackmore Signature Okay. Amp or something like that. I think Vivian Campbell is using one now in the last in line uh, shows where he's playing the old Dio songs. Is that the E650? It's Richie, actually got his name on it. It's, Richie Blackmore you know, E650, I think. Must be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for what it's worth, I think he was using some angle, angle combos when he was doing whatever electric work he would do with Blackmore's Night, he would use like angle combos. So he became sort of an angle spokesperson for a while. I don't know what he's using now. I don't think he's using much now in the way of electric anyway. But um, to me, it didn't make a whole hell of a lot of difference that he was using those amps. Um, yeah, what, what were his, um, so these Marshall Major I guess is that is that like uh, like an evolution of the plexi marshals or? I think I think it's a different circuit. Okay. I'm not really. Uh, not a lot of people use those. Yeah. I um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know exactly you know what's going on in those heads, but uh, it, it's it's got to be different circuitry and and stuff, a different design than what was in the normal fifty and hundred. Um, they had different face plates on them. Some of them had, you know, only a few a few knobs on them. Uh, I I don't know which ones he was using exactly, but um, no, it was still very it was still very martially in made, terms of it. They only made twelve hundred of them, so yeah. So yeah. I guess they 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 were used by rock musicians who needed a very high volume. A notable user yeah. is Richie Blackmore, right. Yeah. Right, probably the most notable user of those amps. The other thing he did, which um, Joe Perry used them too. The other thing Richie did, which was a large part of his sound for a lot of the years in the seventies, was he 
Uh, he had a, an Iowa tape machine on stage that he would use as a sort of a preamp to get a little bit of preamp gain. And he would also use it as an echo unit. Okay. Uh, the way a lot of players would use an echo plex. And if you go back and you look at the clips of where he's on stage, uh, with rainbow in the Dio years, you'll see this thing off to the side, this little uh, reel to reel tape recorder that's sitting on the side of the stage. And, you know, that was part of his sound too. It wasn't, he wasn't always going straight into the app, but as I said, you know, there wasn't a lot of extra gain stage in those days. And it's, it, he's not known for using any pedals or anything like that. Uh, so he, you know, it wasn't like he was kicking on a, a boost pedal for his leads and stuff. So in those days, people would do what they had to do. And he found out he could run through this tape deck and get some extra oomph into his amp. Wow. And, and I think he was also using the tape deck perhaps as a, uh, as the echo unit for when you hear things like, uh, the live introduction to mistreated and things like that, which has a lot of uh, echo on it. And this, this also makes me realize that those guys just had to figure things out. There was, there weren't effects or weren't computers or anything. Tony Iommi was the real king of that. I mean, it's a bit of a tangent, but I mean, a lot of the things that Tony Iommi pioneered, uh, he was like the first guy who, who did 24 fret guitar. Uh, Mm. You know, he, he, was the first guy who had like ultra light strings made because of his fingertips and all that. Uh, there was, you know, a lot of innovating going on because people were trying to get what they needed to have to make this music in a way that they wanted it, you know, to sound. So, you know, we have a, we have a zillion options for everything these days. I mean, almost anything you want, you can buy a pedal for it or something like that. Yeah, and, like, or and, like that and, amp we talked about uh, in one of the previous ones. Yeah, What's yeah, again? All, the, all of this, the Spark. Yeah, the know? Spark, yeah. All of these things that are available now that, you know, these guys didn't have. I mean, you know, just things like having a boost pedal for your solos, that was, you know, that starts coming along, you know, with Fuzz in the late 60s, and it doesn't really become boost and overdrive until seventies. So, you know, those kinds of things, that's why you see people be using treble boosters and things like that. And, um, so, uh, using this tape recorder as another gain stage effectively, or a bit of a preamp boost was one of the things he did that was, um, unique to him. So all of that aside, I mean, when you think of Richie, his tone is really a hard rock strat tone. And even though there was a ton of volume and wattage involved, there's not a lot of gain. You can hear, you know, on all of these clips that it's nothing like the gain we use these days. No. And uh, it's, it's just imminently cleaner. And um, it's a thinner, it's like thinner sounding than Gary Moore's strat sound in the eighties, it's closer to like Jeff Beck's strat tone, but it's still cleaner and, and thinner. It's not, Blackmore doesn't have a fat sound as it were, you know, it doesn't have that big, thick, mid rangey sound. It's, it's more of a, of a, a biting sound. Uh, right. That's, that's, it's got this clean and it's, it's, it's more, more treble and more pronounced. It's not as warm, even as Ingve's sound. It's, it's, it's much cleaner and, and brighter. I think. You got to listen to it loud to appreciate it. I think. Yeah. And again, you know, you, you, you know, 
we think of as players of when you're playing fast things and, and hammer-ons and pull-offs and stuff, you want that gain so that everything's smooth and it, 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 that you get that compression where, you know, if you're playing a lot of quick runs and things, it sounds smooth and even. Yeah. And you could hear on like the, um, on the clips from the Cal Jam jam when we're talking about the chops we stand in front of cal jam you can hear that's not there on those clips you know his notes die out if he doesn't hit them right right you know he almost hits all of them he doesn't you know he he does a lot of uh what do you call it like alternative picking like he he picks almost every note yeah i mean and there's a you know there's there's plenty of hammer-ons and pull-offs and stuff but back in those days you know it was harder to make those things sound smooth and even yeah because you didn't have that excess gain that was so forgiving they were the the you know the gear was more unforgiving in those days is, is i guess the best way to put it you know you know you 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 know if you start with a clean sound on a guitar and you just start trilling a note La, 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 you know, like that. Yeah. And you wanted to run into the next one and the next one and the next one. The more you turn up the gain, the easier that gets. Yes. Now imagine trying to do that with low gain and it, it just makes it a harder exercise and it makes it, you know, harder to sound smooth and even. And um, that was the nature of the gear back in those days. And that only showcases how, how good he actually was, I think, too. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, the other thing we were going to talk about, and we've talked a little bit about this, was the other aspects of his of his guitar style. We talked about that he doesn't play traditional rhythms. Um, you don't usually see him play a root six bar chord. He'll play what's called a root one bar chord, where you don't bar the whole uh, neck of the guitar at the root note. You only bar the top two strings, the uh, the E and the B. It's the same chord, but he, he'll play it without the low end chunk. Whereas, you know, a guy like Iomi will always play it the other way to get the, the low strings involved. Richie's lead style is very staccato, and it's perhaps the most distinctive and recognizable element of his playing. Every note is distinct and separate from the others. They don't run into each other like in a legato style. It's the it's like the polar opposite of, of Joe Satriani. Okay where everything sounds fluid and uh, one note runs right into the next. Every note Richie plays feels distinct and, and, you know, usually it's picked by itself. Uh, It's a very distinctive style. Uh, It also, he also can be very heavy handed with his style, but he can also be very delicate with his style. He, and he goes back and forth between the two very, uh, fluidly and really effectively. So he'll, he'll do some things that are just over the top aggressive. And then he'll do these light, delicate things. Like, again, like you saw in that chops video where he goes into, uh, he, he, he's shredding for a while and he'd drop out and he'll go into green sleeves, right? Green sleeves. Where, where you can tell, where you can tell he's playing very light compared to what he was doing when he was digging into these lead licks. Yeah. 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 You know, so he moves between the fast and flashy and the slow and melodic with a real grace and ease. Um, he's an alternate picker on speed runs, but uses a lot of legato and open string pull-offs. What is uh, alternate picking, by the way? Alternate picking is a technique that all of the fast guitar players use where you are playing in a down-up, down-up, down-up picking pattern. 
And um, so you hit the string on the way down and the way up. Right. You, yeah. Right. And there's a lot to that and it's a, a whole other topic, but you can hit, you know, the string once and play several notes, or you can hit every note with a pick stroke. Right. And alternate picking refers to hitting every note with a pick stroke. And at a certain level... So you have to sync up both your hands perfectly. Yeah, right. And at a certain level, at, you know, to reach certain speeds as a, as, a, as a lead player, you need to be able to alternate pick. Right. Um, to get to a, a, a level of chops that is beyond, like, the 60s level of chops. So he was one of the first guys to really be good at that. Um, so scale-wise, Richie's licks often mix the blues scale with, with the Dorian scale, which is very close to it, and chromatics, which are the notes between, uh, you know, the scales. Uh, every, every note on the uh, fingerboard, if you play them in sequence, that's a chromatic. He was the first rock player to use uh, the aeolian minor extensively this is where you get the classical influence that that classical scale that's different from the blues scale and the pentatonic scale that you hear from most players of that era um, the things that make it sound classical come from minor scales he also sometimes throws in some middle eastern flavored licks and he became known for a scale called the Ch the snake charmer scale which is a variation of the hungarian minor and you'll hear that in some of the rainbow stuff what are some songs that, that are uh, a good example of that? I think you get a little of it in Gates of Babylon. You might have some of it in Still I'm Sad on the first album, um, the first Rainbow album. That's and a self-titled one. Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. Yeah. 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 There's a song called Snake Charmer on that album as well. And um, I think he uses the, he may use the scale on that. The other thing you never think of very much, but we've seen it in some of these clips, and I'm going to show you another clip of it, is uh, Richie uses a lot more slide guitar than you commonly think of. You don't, you know, when you think of Richie Blackmore, slide is not the first thing that comes to mind. But it, it turns out he uses a fair amount of slide. You can run the clip. He's playing Beethoven on the slide, and I, I think yep. people, if you don't play guitar, you have no idea how difficult it is to do that, you know? Yeah, and not make it sound like a mess. I yeah. Mean, you know, that ta that takes, you know, you could be a very good player, a great player who doesn't play slide, and the minute you pick up a slide, you're going to sound like an idiot if you haven't practiced how to play slide. It does. It's a completely different technique that, you know... Yeah, if, if you, you may, like 
press the fret, you you go like with half notes with pretty much with every half and whole notes with every fret you press. But the slides are anything between that too. So, right, the slide you basically are, are you 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 have to put the slide right on the fret, whereas you put your finger behind the fret. Yeah. Uh, but the slide, because you're not pressing down, you're just sliding it over the strings. The part that is in contact with the string has to be directly over the fret. And to get it there just takes some practice. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you have to put in some hours before you sound anything decent on a slide. It's Even if you're really a, a good player with your fingers, slide is, is a different animal. But do you think so, that that clip that was planned out, or was it just a random jam that happened there? No, no, no. That that's a set piece that they played. That was, uh, you know, they would do the Beethoven's Ninth thing. He was doing that in in Rainbow, and then he would he brought it into Purple when he went back to Purple. They would do you know a bit of Beethoven's Ninth, and he, he always played that with the slide. And you know, there's some other slide parts too throughout that are not you know not necessarily the classical stuff, but he's doing a fair amount of it more than, more than you think of when you just think of Richie. I mean, you think of Dwayne Allman, you think slide, you don't think of Richie Blackmore and think slide, you know? And then we're going to talk about some vibrato and his improvisational, his improvisational skills. We have a clip that, that'll show you both of those. Well, and is it true that he would throw his slide at, at his bandmates too, or? Yeah, there is some in some videos you'd see it. He, he'd throw the slide, yeah, after he was done using it. Um, and I'm sure somebody, you know, ran over and put a new one on his on his amp so that he can pick it up for the next song he needed it on. But um, yeah, those kinds of things definitely were were happening. Um, as for his vibrato, he's got a few. He's got a, a medium speed, medium width one, and he's got a fast, frantic one and a heavy-handed one. Um, he, it depends on what he's doing at the time. Like vibrato uh, is when you kind of make the... When like, you're bending the strings and and continuing to bend them. Uh, you shake the back, note. Back and forth, yeah. Yeah. He also used the whammy bar an awful lot uh, and had a very heavy-handed Hendrix-like use of the whammy bar where he's just doing a lot of woo 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 you know, that kind of stuff. And um, you'd see it more in the live setting as a flash effect than you would as an integrated part of his playing style. It's not like he's using it like Jeff Beck where he's using it as, as part of the melodic character of how he's phrasing notes. He's using it to, to be bombastic. Right. to make noise, to make sounds with it.
All right. So let's go back to the things you want to talk about, which. Sure. Yeah. Let's get into Deep Purple a little bit. Yeah. So he was a founding member of Deep Purple. He was in Deep Purple Mark One. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Deep Purple Mark One, Mark Two, and Mark Three is where Richie was. And Mark One, they had three albums out. They were much more of a trippy, psychedelic rock band in the Mark One version of the band. Uh, they had the hit with Hush, which they didn't write, but it became a hit. Um, the first Deep Purple album is a bunch of covers, mostly. They have some other stuff on there, but there's like a version of the Beatles' Help. That's Shades of Deep Purple, right? Yep, Shades of Deep Purple. And then they had the Book of Taliesin, which was uh, the second album. And then they had a third album called Deep Purple, which uh, there's a really cool track on that called April. It's a long 12-minute experimental track. Uh, mostly this stuff, uh, there are people who like it. There are people who still enjoy Mark One Deep Purple. Uh, but the Deep Purple that we know and love and that became famous was the Mark II Deep Purple. And what happened there was, uh, and Richie's been honest about this, he was listening to Led Zeppelin. And uh, he thought they had done a great job making a new path for heavy rock uh, in a way that had, you know, let's be honest, uh, Led Zeppelin was a game changer. And the way it sounded and the way it was being presented was a game changer. It was a new uh, direction past what you were getting with Cream and with Hendrix and with the Yardbirds. It was another level. And Richie thought that Deep Purple could do that kind of music if they got a better singer. And uh, they found the better singer in Ian Gillen. And Ian Gillen's bandmate, Roger Glover, was the bass player. And they got those two guys in and sacked Rod Evans and Nick Simper from Mark One. And tr true to form, you, you have a singer like Ian Gillen, you can pretty much, young Ian, Ian Gillen could do everything Robert Plant was doing and more. The guy uh, had a voice, man. Just... Pipes like you would not believe. Absolutely. Uh, one of the best singers of all time, clearly on the level with, with anyone you want to, you want to mention. So that opened the door for them to do heavy rock. And at that time they had just, the other thing that they had done was the album for uh, deep purple for uh, orchestra and concerto or whatever it was. It was John Lord's uh, classical piece that he had written. It had given them some stature in terms of credibility amongst the critics. They had gone and played with an orchestra. And, you, you know, they had done this this classical piece uh, because it was John Lord's baby and they wanted, to, you know, to do this for them and they recorded it. And I think, again, the clips you see from uh, that we've played that have Richie with the ES335, that was from that performance. That was at the Royal Albert Hall, I believe. And um, they played this concerto for group and orchestra and then they played some of their rock songs from Mark One. But Richie told John Lord, he said, let's try this hard, heavy rock thing. And if it doesn't work, I'll go back to playing concertos with you for the rest of the time. And fortunately for all of us, the hard rock thing, they did very well. And the first album you get is In Rock, 
which is an absolute classic benchmark album. Um, in some ways, you could say it was Deep Purple Mark II's best album. Everybody talks about Machine Head as being the best album. And, you know, that's that's an arguable case. You could say that. But, you know, In Rock was another groundbreaking album yeah, you in, got, the way, in, in the way that Zeppelin One was a groundbreaking album. You got Speed and, King and Bloodsucker, Child in Time, Flight yep. of the Red, Into the Fire, Living Wreck, Hard Loving Man. Yeah, it's an incredibly heavy, wonderful album. Uh And it, you know, it really did start setting the tone and the benchmark for along with what Led Zeppelin was doing and along with what Black Sabbath was doing for all heavy music that would follow. And then, of course, they they did a follow up album called Fireball, which didn't sell quite as well, but it still was a great album. Didn't have as many sort of uh, memorable tracks on it, but it's a real good album. And then, of course, they did Machine Head, which was the one that broke them wide open well, you had and to, made them. One of my favorite tracks is the the mule on there when they do the live live shows yeah. with the drum solos and the you know yeah. that they drag out for like half an hour sometimes. Yeah, they were you know you can make the case that they were a very prog band in 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 one aspect. They weren't so much like art rock the way that like Yes became art rock and 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 King Crimson and stuff like that. But they they kept one foot in the heavy hard rock stuff. But there was a lot of progressive elements in what they would do, especially live. How how would you? Uh, what do you mean art rock exactly? Art rock like like Pink Floyd or or like Yes, right, yeah. where it, it's it's you know it's both progressive and yet it's artsy uh, in its way rather than you know. It's the kind of thing that that all the punks rebelled against, right? Yeah, <laughs> later. But uh, there was a lot of progressive elements in in the Deep Purple Mark II lineup, and then of course, you get into say, the last album of that lineup was, "Who Do We Think We Are?" The band was starting to splinter and fracture personality wise. Uh, the other thing Richie's famous for is feuding with Ian Gillen. Those two didn't get along. There's notorious stories about, you know, the the incidents between those two. And uh, Who Do We Think We Are has My Woman from Tokyo on it, which is a great track and one of his great riffs. But there's not a lot on that album beyond that song that most people memor- remember. So conclusion, the two best uh, albums of that, uh, or, yeah, I mean, they're all all four of them are worth listening to but if you had to pick one or two of them Yeah, lineup. I mean listen to if you if you have Spotify listen to all four of them if you're going to buy them buy in rock and buy Machine Head. Yeah, agreed. Machine and Head. And if you was, like and if you like Fireball buy it. But I mean, you know. Well, Machine Head was kind of my introduction to rock music yeah, because that's, my that's mom the one had it, it on record. So I was, you know. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine for anybody these days to understand that in 1972 Deep Purple was selling as much as Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones. Wow. I didn't know that either. Uh, Zeppelin and the Stones ruled the 70s in terms of money-making, in terms of touring and money-making. But at one time in 1972, when Deep Purple were at their absolute popular zenith, they were earning as much money as Zeppelin and the Stones. The difference is they didn't continue to earn that much money, and Stones and Zeppelin did. Machine Head's so good, though. It is. It really is. It's such a great album. So 73 comes along, and they uh, 
uh, Ian Gillen leaves the band and Roger Glover gets fired. But hold on, on, before we go there, Made in Japan is also worth mentioning. Oh, yes, yes. That, you know, you could also say if you're only going to get one Mark II album, you could get Made in Japan. Made in Japan is one of the classic live albums of the 70s, along with things like Thin Lizzy's uh, Live and Dangerous and UFOs, Strangers in the Night. And, you know, one of the great live albums of all time um, and a double live album at that. And that shows the band uh, in 1972, I think, Two, yeah. uh, on its on its Japanese tour. And they were just on top of their game. And everything about it was uh, was spectacular. And that album, a lot of those tracks from that album made it onto, onto radio. And you'd hear the live versions of songs on the radio in those days. They, you know, because that album really did showcase a lot of... Uh, what they were doing all right it's kind of a best of mark ii live it's got some epic guitar and drum solos too yep and ian gillen doing some some crazy stuff on vocals all right then you got mark three yeah and um due to the personality clashes ian gillen leaves uh, at the same time, Roger Glover gets fired for no reason. Uh, <laughs> no reason at all? Or? Yeah, he, he did nothing. And uh, <laughs> First, they bring in Glenn Hughes, who had been in a band called Trapeze. He's a bass player and a singer extraordinaire with a very different kind of voice. He had a very... He could do a lot of the uh, high-end shrieky stuff that Gillen could do, but he had a, he had a very soul voice rather than a blues voice, much more Stevie Wonder than you know a blues voice. Right. Um, and then uh, they had talked about trying to get Paul Rogers, but Paul Rogers wasn't that interested. But Richie wanted a guy who was a bluesy singer like Paul Rogers, so they actually put out an advertisement looking for somebody. They and they were looking for unknowns. And that's when they find David Coverdale. And um, he was a total unknown at the time, but he sent in a tape and he sent in, an, you know, like an audition tape and they heard him and they brought him down and uh, told him to lose some weight and get your teeth fixed. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, a star was born and Coverdale has one of the great blues rock voices of all time. Uh, especially back then when he was in Deep Purple. Um, his voice is a shell of what that once was, but on those albums he did with Deep Purple, man, his voice was absolutely mighty. And the uh, the first Mark III album was Burn, which is a classic in its own right. Burn is as good as anything Mark II ever did. It's got classic tracks on it. It's got uh, brilliant harmony vocals between... David Coverdale and Glenn Hughes. Richie's still interested at this time. The track Burn itself is one of my very favorite Deep Purple songs of all time. Yeah. It stands toe-to-toe with any other any other era of Deep Purple song you want to talk about. And then you also have, you know, some some other songs that are classics as well, including things like Mistreated, uh, which we've mentioned a couple of times, which is a big bluesy workout. And um, that was a great album. The, the last uh, jam track, A200, is also great, I think. Yeah, that's an instrumental, and Richie's playing his ass off on that. It's uh, really good. Um, Burn, the very first track, is also just an, just a crazy display of amazing musicianship. Of, yeah. Of every, of, from all sides, you know. 
Yeah. And, you know, you also have, um, you know, You Fool No One, which is a drum tour de force from Ian Pace. And it's it's just a magnificent album uh, from start to finish, Burnt. It's it's really, in my opinion, easily as good as Machine Head. Uh, you know, you can argue which, which lineup you prefer, but as an album, I'd say it's easily as good as Machine Head. Uh, then Richie starts getting uninterested again. Uh, doesn't like the direction that Glenn Hughes is pulling the band in towards more, uh, you know, black influenced music, soul influenced music. And they do this album called Stormbringer. And Richie is mostly checked out by the time of Stormbringer. Uh, it's a good album. I like the album. It's not uh, for the reasons I like the other albums. This is where the band starts changing and becomes a little more soulful and a little more funky. And Richie is a smaller part of the overall picture on this album. I love the album because of the vocals. I love the album because of the feel of the songs. And when Richie does play, he's, it's really effective. But you can tell he's lost interest. He's just not, it's just not as, his fingerprints aren't all over that one in the same way. And then uh, they go on tour at that point and they take a band called Elf on tour with them. And Elf has a lead singer named Ronnie James Dio. <laughs> and uh, the rest of that is history as well. Um, Richie hears Ronnie singing and realizes that, you know, he could do a solo, a solo thing with Ronnie as his vocalist. Um, at that point, he leaves Deep Purple. He starts Rainbow with Elf as a band, except he kicks their guitarist out and inserts himself as the guitarist and swallows up Elf, basically. So he gets Ronnie James Dio. He gets the rest of the band Elf minus their guitarist, and that's his new solo band called Rainbow. And I guess and the they first, accepted it because Blackmore was legendary at that point. Oh, yeah. He's going to make them. He's gonna make names for all of them. Right. Except for the guitar player, they kicked out. <laughs> right, right. He he ends up, you know, he he ends up having his Pete Best moment. Yeah, they do the first album, and it's a good album. And shortly after they put that album out, Richie realizes this band is limited in in its talent, um, other than for Dio. So he sacks everybody but Dio. So after he sacks the initial band, he replaces them with Cozy Powell on drums, Jimmy Bain on bass, and Tony Carey on keyboards, and you have a much stronger band. And Cozy Powell immediately affects the entire sound of the band and takes it to another level. Uh, his drumming in the Rainbow stuff is just magical and powerful, and it, it's... Um, such a huge part of what their sound became. That second album is is so insanely heavy. It's just, yeah, it blows your right. head off. Right. And then they do a third album with that, with, uh, with Cozy and, and Ronnie Dio and they change the keyboard player and they change the bass player to Bob Daisley. And the keyboard player, I believe is Mark Stone on, on long live rock and roll. David Stone. And David Stone. I'm sorry. David Stone. And for my money, that's the best of the three albums. I know a lot of people like Rising better. I, I think um, Long Live Rock and Roll, they, they, they get the right balance between 
shorter songs and, and epic songs. And uh, it's just uh, the level of magnitude goes up. And for example, some of the best harmonies you'll ever hear Ronnie James Dio sing are on Long Live Rock and Roll. He just does a lot of three-part harmony work on that. The drums are, are, are spectacular and part of the composition. And, you know, you, 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 he, Cozy Powell gets credit for, for writing credit for things like Kill the King because his drum parts are such an uh, important part of the song. Um, it's a magical album. That's the one that has Gates of Babylon on it, which we listened to. Uh, terrific stuff. And then Richie gets tired of that and wants to go in a more pop direction and realizes that, you know, he's pretty much run his course with heavy rock in that respect. And he wants to take things into a more radio friendly sort of direction. And he has a conversation with Ronnie James Dio and he says, I want to do things like love songs. And Ronnie says, I don't do love songs. So that band splits up. He ends up getting Graham Bonnet. I believe he's also credited for finding Graham Bonnet, who really wasn't the name before that. Graham Bonnet becomes part of Rainbow. It was an odd mix. Uh, they did one album called Down to Earth. Um, there are two tracks on that that are standout tracks. One of them is uh, All Night Long. The other one is Since You've Been Gone, both of which were radio-friendly compared to the Dio stuff. But Graham Bonnet doesn't have a... a classically radio friendly voice either he's a guy who has a sort of uh somewhere in the middle voice and he's a very intense sounding singer at times and and very brash sounding at times so if you're looking for like pop radio sensibility graham bonnet isn't going to be your guy either so after one album with that lineup he regroups yet again and eventually finds joe lynn turner who has a nice smooth pop voice, but can also sing some bluesy rock. And, you know, a lot of the, uh, the eighties stuff is characterized by the Joel and Turner era. And they did uh, difficult to cure. And, and I believe it was straight between the eyes. What's the name of the yeah, second album? Straight between the eyes. Straight between the eyes, to Joe and Turner, and they ended up doing. You know, they get they got some radio play. They got things like Stone Cold, and uh, what was the other hit? I think they had a hit with Stone Cold, and they had a hit with Power. Both of them were were minor hits. They were not like you know top of the charts hits, but they had some minor hits. They were on MTV. They were doing things like that, and in nineteen eighty late 83 early 84 there's talk of reforming deep purple mark ii and they also put a put a third album out called bent out of shape i see that was later 83 83 was bent out of shape according to wikipedia yeah you're probably right yeah yeah you're right but after that happened uh there was a uh a move to get Deep Purple Mark II back together. And that happened in 1984. And they got the whole Mark II lineup back together. Richie Blackmore, Ian Gillen, Ian Pace, John Lord, and Roger Glover. And they came together and they buried the hatchet for a short time and came up with the 
one of the greatest comeback albums of all time called Perfect Strangers. And um, that album was such a joy for everybody who was a Deep Purple fan because you don't expect, they're coming back 10 years after they broke up, basically. And they came back with such a ferocious album that had all of the sounds and sonics and classic Deep Purpleisms you wanted to hear. And Richie was on fire on that album. Everybody was on fire. On but that it also album. also had like that eighty sound to it a little bit, you know. It, it was definitely maybe just a little bit of it. I mean, the, the the first thing you hear on the first song you hear is the John Lord organ. Yeah, and it's like you know, we're all sitting around waiting for like you know we've been hearing the new Deep Purple albums coming. They've re- reunited and everything, and they're finally going to debut this song on. MTV to hear what they've come up with. And the first thing you hear is the John Lord organ going through the Marshall and you get this big smile on your face right? because it's like, there it is. Yeah. There it is. It's it's like they're back. And it was a, a wonderful album and a wonderful tour. I saw the tour. They were having fun with each other in a way that they probably had never had. And, uh, it was one of the great concerts I've seen in my life that that reunion tour. They, you know, they it was basically you get all of the old stuff played live plus a bunch of the new stuff played live. They played for over two hours. It was fantastic. Blackmore was on fire. Uh, Ian Gillen singing "Child in Time" like a demon, and you know all of the stuff that you would everything you wanted a reunion of that band to be. It was. It didn't disappoint on any level whatsoever. And um, I love the title track too, Perfect Strangers. That's such a, such a great tune too. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, but pretty much every tune on that album is, is fantastic. Yeah. True. It's as good. It's as good an album as they've made in the seventies in some ways. Um, Maybe not as iconic. Right. But, you know, just from a standpoint of it as, as an album, it's as, it's as strong an album as they ever released. And, and then, so they tooled along with that for a bit and they, they had a follow-up, which was nowhere near as good called house of blue light. It had a co- couple of good songs on it and they toured that. And, uh, I, I think that's where the wheels started to come off again and all the old, uh, arguments and, dislikes started to show up again and for whatever reason they decided to do one more and they called it the battle rages on and that's a decent album too but uh you know by then the tour was getting out of hand the 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 infighting between gillen and blackmore was becoming too much for the rest of the band um but they they broke up between that right like they richie left during a tour okay and there was, I think, the famous incident of the spaghetti throwing incident or something like that. <laughs> uh, again, if you go on YouTube and you, you Google, uh, you know, spaghetti Richie, throwing Richie Blackmore. Yeah. Yeah. They were, you know, they were messing with each other, Blackmore and, um, and Gillen. And uh, there's a live video that uh, of the night that they had that problem and like, I forget what the name of the video is. I should look that up. Hang on a second. But I see that they had a lineup with 
Jolin Turner on vocals, and they put an album out, Slaves and Masters, between yeah. the House of Blue Light and, and the Battle Rages On. Right. You're right. Between House of Blue Light and the Battle Rages On, they do a, a Deep Purple album with Jolin Turner. A lot of people like this album. It's a little bit, I can't really go down that road uh, personally so much. Uh, and then they get back together for this last roundup called The Battle Rages On. And there's a live video. I don't remember. What, it's a concert video that you could buy. And uh, it, it happened to capture early on the part of the problems that were going on in the band. The band hit the stage with Highway Star and there's no Richie Blackmore. It just didn't, and and show it's up. just just bass and keyboards and, and drums and Ian Gillen singing. And for the whole first verse, there's no Richie Blackmore on stage. And then somewhere after the first verse, he starts, he wanders out on stage and starts playing. And somewhere in the middle of the song, he throws a cup of water at Ian Gillen. <laughs> it splashes all over Gillen and, and John Lord. And, uh, you know, they were just, they just did not get along. And I think that was around the same time of this, this backstage incident where, um, Ian Gillen had poured ketchup on Richie's food and Richie found out he smashed the plate of food in Ian Gillen's face. And, you know, they almost came to blows over that. And I think, you know, what happened was Richie walked off the tour and that was the end of Richie and Deep Purple. I mean, the final end of Richie and Deep Purple. And they, that's when they got Joe Satriani to, to come and fill in for the rest of the tour dates. And then they, they had, two more lineups, I think. Well, we didn't talk about Mark IV. Mark IV was when, when he originally left for Rainbow, but this is about Richie. But I mean, Yeah, sure. Uh, so Mark IV had Tommy Bolin on guitar. It's a really good album in some respects, but a lot most people don't think it sounds very much like Purple. And it was a big drop-off because it was a different kind of thing. Now, the thing with Deep Purple is whenever they had a lineup change. They were not trying to recreate what they had already done. They were always trying as musicians, they were always trying to go into new territory and new areas. So when they, when Richie first left in 1974, 75, whatever it was, they didn't want a Richie Blackmore clone. They wanted someone completely different as a player, not even, I mean, obviously they wanted someone different as a personality too, because he was so difficult. But, and the same thing happened later on when uh, he left in the 90s. And after Joe Satriani left to continue his solo career, they needed a new guitarist and they picked up Steve Morse, another guy who's a really good player, but sounds nothing like Blackmore. Right. So they, they never were trying to, you know, put a Blackmore clone in just so that their old material would sound more authentic. They just, you know, kept trying to do different kinds of music. But that's sort of the, uh, the discography, if you will, of the classic Blackmore era of, you know, his prime. It's a pretty incredible body of work. Yeah, it is. And it stands up to this day. Uh, you know. Is there, uh, does Rainbow have a live or, or made in Japan equivalent uh, live album? Or It's not quite that good. Um, there's one. Uh, that's live in Germany or live in Munich or something like that, uh, that you, you can find that one. And that's, there's a video of it and a, uh, 
an album of it. Um, it's good, but it's um, it's on the rising. Well, it's right before Long Live Rock and Roll gets released. So the rising stuff is there. You get Kill the King, you get Long Live Rock and Roll, and you get Stargazer and things like that. So it's it's a good album. It's not in the same class as Made in Japan, but it's a good album. Cool. All right. Well, I think we uh, we covered a lot today. Yeah. I would yeah. say. Is is there anything in conclusion that you would like to mention or say or, or anything that we might have missed? I mean, we talked for well over two hours, so. Yeah, I think you're just going to have a hell of an editing job in front of you because <laughs> I think yeah. you need to get the sequence right. But I think no, I think we've said everything. Um, this man's, uh, like I said, one of the, one of the the foundational pillars of an entire school of guitar. Yeah. Uh, he, he's, you know, as important as anyone who's ever picked up the instrument in hard rock. Cool. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Thanks for all this great information. And, and, uh, you know, I really learned a lot today and I enjoyed the hell out of it just like the last two times. And if you want to read about the stuff we talked about, go to dinosaurrockguitar.com and you can go to the guitar alchemy and uh, Richie's profile is there among many others. Yep. So let's let Richie take us out. And we've talked about him enough. Let's let him have the last word as it were. So in this last clip, you're going to get pretty much a good look at everything we've been talking about of, of, of his lead style, you're going to see, you know, the light touch, the heavy touch, the vibrato, the improvisational skills, all the things that you're, you're, he's doing in this clip are right in the moment and off the cuff. Um, yeah, they had set this up for him to get, have a moment like that, but this from night to night is going to be every di- you know, a different thing every night. He's not playing the same thing every night in, in those kinds of things. He's just jamming at that point and making it up. He really just does it so well. You can't say too much about Richie. I mean, there, he's just a classic. He's one of the greatest of all time. He's, uh, in, you know, a god in the pantheon of guitar of this genre. And with that, take it away.
All right, everybody. I'm sure you enjoyed that one. I enjoyed the hell out of it. Thanks again uh, for coming on, Dave. That was great. Be sure to go to dinosaurrockguitar.com to find more background on what we talked about and many other players and much more information regarding the rock and roll, or I should say the heavy guitar rock universe. And also be sure to go to diederik.blog to find the show notes for this episode and sign up for the newsletter there so you never miss an episode. Follow me on social media at Dutch Diederik. And if you're watching this on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel so you also don't miss episodes. There's more of this coming. I'm very excited about it. Go to diederik.blog slash apost to visit Apple's audio audio file equipment. Visit diederik.blog slash Amazon to go to Amazon and find the Alert A-L-L-E-R-T allergy app on the iOS app store if you have a food allergy and you are traveling to a country where you don't speak the language. That's it, everybody. Thank you all for listening and till seeds. <laughs>